You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hello, welcome to our edition of Law Technology Now podcast. I'm Sean LaRocque-Doherty, and it is a pleasure to have the Honorable Andrew J. Peck with us today. Judge Peck is now Senior Counsel at DLA Piper in New York City. He served for 23 years as Magistrate Judge for the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, including a term as the Chief Magistrate Judge from 2004 to 2005. Before his appointment to the bench, Judge Peck was in private practice for 17 years, focusing on commercial and entertainment litigation, including copyright and trademark matters, with extensive trial experience. At DLA Piper, Judge Peck advises on innovative and efficient solutions to the challenges of information management, both within and outside the litigation context. He frequently speaks at conferences concerning e-discovery issues, and since joining DLA Piper, Judge Peck has been retained to serve as special discovery counsel to clients and law firms and to submit expert reports to state court cases. Welcome, Judge Peck. Thank you very much. And before we get into it, a quick note to our sponsor, Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. And Judge Peck, since retiring in 2018, you have been a senior counsel with DLA Piper. What challenges did you face while transitioning from the judiciary to private practice, and what problems persist today? It actually, Sean, was a very smooth transition, uh, probably made particularly smooth because the person who recruited me to come to DLA Piper uh, is one of my former law clerks, Tamar Duvdevani, who is the partner in charge of the IP practice in DLA Piper's New York office. So I'm just working with her again. And of course, you know, 4,000 other lawyers in our small, intimate firm of DLA Piper um, but that made the transition incredibly easy. And other than I no longer can order people to do anything, I'm sort of doing the same things that I was doing on the court. The biggest difference probably, and the thing that uh, I, I like least about law firm practice is having to record time in six-minute increments. But Nevertheless, one has to do that in order to get paid. Other differences are, you mentioned that I am was and still am a frequent speaker at eDiscovery 
conferences. When I did that as a judge, maybe if I were gone for three or four days, I'd get one email from one of my law clerks saying, you know, Lawyer Smith in the XYZ case is asking for another extension. What do you want me to do with it? Now, when I'm at conferences, uh, tends to be more client or colleague emails that actually need to get responded to pretty quickly. So that's another change. And finally, of course, um, we did not need to look for business at the Southern District of New York. Cases just kept coming in the door. Now, of course, I you know, need to have clients, whether they're clients that I bring into the firm or firm clients that I wind up working with. But that's a lot of fun. Oh, very good. And we're talking to you in your office in New York City. How many, I guess, uh, people are just in New York City from D.L. Piper that you work with? You know, I should know our statistics better than I do, but I believe it's about 250 lawyers in the New York office and obviously support staff as well. Well, Very good. So back on track here. As a magistrate judge, you handed down critical decisions that forced the bench and the bar to mind electronic discovery. Those cases are noted by every e-discovery legal professional. What comes to my mind are Fisher v. Forrest and Hiles v. New York City, Rio Tinto and De Silva Moore. Now you practice what you opined. How do these rulings work from the other side of the bench? And how have you used your expertise to direct DLA Piper's e-discovery practice? I try to be consistent. And even though, obviously, as a judge, I was coming from a neutral position, and now cases at DLA, we tend to be representing the defendant. Nevertheless, I still believe in the things that I preached about from the bench, such as cooperation in discovery. Of course, what I'm learning is it takes two to cooperate. And if it's an asymmetric case where the plaintiff side has very little discovery to provide and it uses discovery as a way to, shall we say, torture the defendant, uh, (laughs) that's a problem and it's harder to be as cooperative. I've found in some of the cases I've been working with in the last 18 months since I've been at the L.A. Piper, that there are some cases, even asymmetric, where there is a great deal of cooperation from the other side. Uh, And particularly, I can think of two cases where at least one of the lawyers on the other side was um, a Sedona conference uh, member. We knew each other from that. And more important than knowing each other, we knew the Sedona principles and how they should apply. Another case where I was uh, am involved, uh, one of the first conferences we had with our side on the phone with the other side's myriad lawyers. And one of them says to me at the start of that call, uh, you know, Judge Peck, we know each other from Sedona conference meetings and uh, there you were always Judge Peck, but now you're my adversary. I refuse to call you Judge Peck, and what should I call you? And I 
basically said, whatever you want. Getting off the phone after that, the lawyers on our side of the case from the other law firms um, were, were particularly annoyed at that person for being disrespectful. I was a little more bemused by it. But the other interesting thing is his side did not have him back on any subsequent phone call. So I don't know what to take from that. More substantively, I think one of the biggest issues is uh, discovery requests and responses. And as you alluded to in Fisher against Forrest, I gave one of my so-called wake-up calls to the bar of the Southern District of New York and elsewhere, of course, and explained that Rule 34B2 had been changed by the December 2015 amendments to the federal rules. It required objections to be made with specificity, and it required one to clearly indicate whether anything was being withheld as a result of objections or not, whether they were just sort of there as a placeholder or whether they were there, meaning that information was not being provided to the other side. I think every lawyer who has ever done anything in discovery knows what the old form of objections and responses looked like. It would be something like this. We object to this specific request for all the reasons in our general objections. In addition, we object that this request is vague, broad, burdensome. We don't understand what half the English language words you're using mean. Oh, yes, if they have updated their form since December 2015, they now throw in, and the request is not proportional to the needs of the case. Then there's sort of the pause, and it says, without waiver of these objections, we'll produce what we damn well feel like producing when the court orders us to or hell freezes over. Now, obviously, I took some liberties with the last part of that phrase, but that is what most responses looked like before the December 2015 amendments. They were ridiculous. Judges were fed up with it. It resulted in needless fights. And in Fisher, I, you know, sort of threw down the gauntlet and said, and if you keep doing that sort of nonsense, I will consider it a waiver of all objections except for privilege. And there were numerous other cases coming out at around that time and since that say the same thing. Nevertheless, we keep seeing in practice, I see it now, that that sort of boilerplate response is still much too prevalent. Obviously, DLA is a big firm, and I can't speak for every litigator in the firm, but it is my practice in both training colleagues on e-discovery issues and in directly dealing with things to try to eliminate that from our responses, often by using the word because. If you just say something is broad, vague, burdensome, it doesn't say anything. If you throw in the why, it is overly broad because it asks for 25 years worth of data, but we've only been involved in this contract in dispute in the last two years, that helps the court. But one of the things I'm finding in practice is where the other side's requests 
continue to have 10 pages of definitions and instructions, most of which are uh, contrary to the federal rules, it's pretty hard to say we're not going to respond to that with general objections. So really, you know, if I put on a sort of professor hat, it is going to require the requests to be more uh, realistic and proportional, and that will enable a responding party to do a better job in responding. Indeed. I guess we can all look forward to a little bit more specificity there. At least I've, uh, I haven't thrown away my templates, but I marked them do not use. <laughs> so, but why don't we see more clients demanding and more counsel requesting the use of TAR instead of keywords in e-discovery? That is a very good question, and I wish I knew the answer. I mean, my DeSilvermore decision was in 2012. By Rio Tinto in my decision, that was in early 2015, I was able to say, analyzing the case law that had come out since De Silva Moore, that by now, 2015, it is black letter law that if the responding party wished to use predictive coding, aka technology-assisted review, aka TAR, was free to do so, and courts would not in any way object to that. Nevertheless, and I'm seeing this in private practice as well as what I saw uh, in the court after 2015, in most cases, it is still prevalent to use keywords. I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know whether its lawyers are not comfortable with the technology behind TAR, or the clients are not comfortable and are afraid that, yes, certain courts have approved it, but not every judge in the world has, and they don't want to be in front of a Neanderthal judge, particularly if something goes wrong. I don't know. I must say, you know, it's the clients who wind up footing the bill for all of this. They should be pushing it more. Uh, but it's not. But one of the things I am seeing is that TAR is used even in quote-unquote keyword cases. It's just used behind the scenes. So I've seen cases where the parties negotiate for keywords. That becomes what gets the documents, and by documents, of course, I mean electronically stored information, into the vendor system. And then, even with a client uh, or counsel who have said, no, we're going to use keywords, not TAR, the vendor then says, by the way, instead of just batching out randomly the next 100 documents to the reviewers, you know, 100 at a time, we're going to use this analytic tool we have, aka TAR, behind the scenes, so to speak, and we'll use that to send the most relevant likely documents to the reviewers to review and to review similar documents at the same time and all of that. So it winds up that TAR is used, sort of, but used behind the scenes. But I certainly do wish and believe that, you know, with all this talk 
in the industry and just in the popular press about, quote, AI, end quote, you know, that is to say artificial intelligence or computers doing more. I, I am surprised that it's been such a slow build uh, to use TAR. Hence, it follows the legal industry, I guess. Uh, but I guess kind of moving on, since your decision in anti-monopoly versus Hasbro, electronic data is discoverable. However, we mostly discover email. Judge Peck, what's next? I think what's next is already here. Email is largely for old folks. I hate to say that. You know, just like it took a while for people to get comfortable going from writing a memo and in sending a letter in you know, the mail with a stamp on it and waiting three to five days, and then it moved to email. Well, now younger employees in the business world are finding email to be old and slow and clunky and not the best way to communicate. So we have to recognize and deal with much more, yes, email, but also text messages, also various collaboration tools, whether Dropbox or anything else that allow people to interact and collaborate much more quickly. And of course, we are faced with, can businesses use the disappearing messaging apps? Is that appropriate or is that a sign of something nefarious going on? Uh, all of these are new challenges. And again, we are trying to fit old rules, the federal rules of civil procedure, around newer technology. To a certain extent, when I left the bench 18 months ago, it looked to me like in many cases, other than with the most sophisticated counsel, parties were doing what they had done about email back in 2004 or thereabouts, and that is sort of looking at each other, recognizing mutually assured destruction principles, and doing the, you know, then it was, I won't ask you for email if you don't ask me. Now it's, okay, let's produce email, wink, wink, you know, let's not talk to each other about text or anything else that's going to be much more complicated. That really is not the right way to deal with the newer media. And finally, uh, in terms of discovery, what we've seen over the last few years is that social media discovery can be very, very useful. Uh, it used to be in you know the typical slip and fall or other form of case where the plaintiff was saying, after this accident or incident, I've been laid up in bed, I haven't left my house in a year, et cetera, et cetera. And the defendant would go out and hire a private investigator, hoping to see pictures of the plaintiff water skiing or doing other physical activity when they're claiming to be bedridden. Now, you don't really need to have that private investigator playing Sherlock Holmes and snooping around. You look at the plaintiff's social media and you see what uh, he or she has posted or what their friends have posted of current photos uh, that belie their inactivity. So that 
wound up for a while sort of leveling the playing field, the old asymmetric case where the plaintiff had no discoverable material and the defendant had it all, then it became, okay, let's get the plaintiff's social media. Uh, They now do have skin in the game. Then, of course, more and more corporations went into using social media accounts to push their product, their brand, whatever it may be. So they also had social media to deal with. The fun thing about being involved with e-discovery is things are always changing. The rules may or may not change, but the technology uh, and what we live with on a daily basis is changing, and that makes it interesting and challenging for lawyers who have to deal with it. Beyond e-discovery, how has your judicial experience benefited the work you do as senior counsel at DLA Piper? Well, you know, I've sort of been branded as the judge here, or Judge Peck, um, and that perhaps makes the advice I give uh, listen to some more. Um, But, you know, beyond that, which is sort of funny, um, I have been able to not only work with the discovery issues, but in general be a sounding board for the firm and our clients of how will certain arguments how will certain things resonate with a judge, you know? Uh, And when it's a judge in the Southern District of New York, then I could really bring my knowledge of particular judges. But even in general, it is, you know, does this particular argument that we are thinking of making pass the smell test? If it were made to you, judge, how would you have reacted to it? So that's one thing. Another is... I am a firm believer in uh, giving training and experience to our associates. So one of the programs that I wanted to be involved with here was to take trial-ready cases in the Southern District of New York where the plaintiff had begun the case pro se and survived discovery and summary judgment motion on their own, and now the case was ready for trial. So I've taken one of those already, a Section 1983 civil rights action brought against two police officers for alleged use of excessive force. The firm agreed to take the case on pro bono uh, when approached by the court's pro se office, and I had three mid-level associates who tried the case in front of a jury in the Southern District of New York, trial experience that as, you know, first chair type work, they each got to do either a direct or a cross or both as well as an opening and a closing. I mean, associates do not get that experience for paying clients in the big firms anymore. So this is a way to train the next generation of potential partners and trial lawyers. And since as a judge, I was seeing the ever decreasing level of cases going to trial. The statistics, I believe, in the federal courts generally are that less than 1% of civil cases ever go to trial. And as a result of that, there are many, many lawyers, including partners at major firms, who have never tried a jury trial. 
and, and that's an art, and I hate to see it disappearing. So mentoring young associates in that way is one of the things that I'm uh, very involved in and very uh, a firm believer in. In addition, I have done mock oral arguments and mock trial situations here for the firm. Uh, so we had a few cases last summer uh, going before the Second Circuit for um, appeal oral arguments. And I, along with some other senior people here, served as the mock um, Second Circuit to see how certain arguments flowed. So those are some of the things. Excellent. Well, those are excellent opportunities for young associates. And I can tell you, if I had that mentoring opportunity when I was in a firm, I may still be there. So before we move on, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors. Hey, law firms, getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls due to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. We're back, and we're just talking with the Honorable Andrew J. Peck, Senior Counsel at DLA Piper. Judge, I have found that judges never really stop judging. How have you continued your judicial experience in private practice? Predominantly through doing what, as you say, retired judges tend to do, which is arbitration and mediation. So I'm doing that both directly through the firm. Uh, I've had a few cases where lawyers who knew me had appeared before me on the bench just called me up and said, can you arbitrate or as mediate as the case may be our situation? In addition, I'm signed up with the AAA, the American Arbitration Association, with uh, Federal Arbitration, Inc., and with NAM, National Arbitration and Mediation, and take arbitration and mediation situations through them. I've probably had maybe half a dozen at this point, uh, had a few others where, unfortunately, one of the drawbacks to being at a big firm is that, you know, a partner in our Oshkosh office had done a real estate transaction for someone once three years ago or whatever, and it meant that I was conflicted out of an arbitration possibility. But other than that, I'm available for arbitration and mediation through all those mechanisms. In addition, I am uh, available to serve as a court-appointed special master. I have been um, recommended by one side or another in a few cases, but have not yet had a special master assignment come my way. Now, part of that may be that the magistrate judge corps was and is still so good in the Southern District of New York that it takes a real lot of fighting over issues before judges or magistrate judges in the Southern District send it out to a special master as opposed to having the judges do it. I will 
tell one story. We'll see if it lands on the cutting room floor or not. I was just recommended uh, by somebody I knew through the discovery community to be uh, a special master in a case in federal court in Florida. I believe, but I'm not sure that the other side may have been amenable, but they have what one might call a protectionist system in that district. And that is to say, just like you know, lawyers uh, uh, who pass the bar in New York or other states can't wave into the bar in Florida in order to be approved as a special master or mediator in Florida. One has to have gone through certain local courses, which, of course, means that anyone who is not actively practicing uh, full time in Florida is not likely to be available because they will not have that background. So protectionism is still at work in Florida. I've heard you speak at many conferences on the topics of e-discovery and legal technology. Do you continue to lend your expertise and experience as a speaker? I do. And that was one of my um, conditions in coming to DLA is I wanted to continue on that speaking circuit. And uh, not only was the firm agreeable, they were very supportive. It's obviously good marketing for me and for the firm. Um, So I've continued with most of the ones that I have been involved with over the years. Uh, The Sedona Conference, uh, for example, the eDiscovery Institute at Sedona, I have been and still am on the working group one, the discovery part of Sedona, uh, the steering committee for that group and have attended every one of their meetings. In addition, then some new ones just, uh, you know, come out of thin air. I was invited by the government of the United Arab Emirates to go to Dubai at their expense this past year to speak at uh, a part of their global world forum. And the part was a breakout group of sessions on AI, artificial intelligence. And because of my judicial opinions that you've mentioned that had to do with the approval of the use of predictive coding, also known as TAR, um, they invited me and I went over had never been in, not only had never been in Dubai or the UAE, had never been anywhere in that area of the world. And it was a fascinating experience. If we only talked about the law and e-discovery, our listeners wouldn't know the judge at DLA Piper. What takes you away from private practice? Well, every Saturday during the season when there is a Yankee home game, Uh, you will find me at Yankee Stadium. I am a long-term, maybe it's because I grew up in the Bronx, but I've always been a Yankee fan, and I've had a Yankee uh, Saturday season ticket mini plan uh, for, I don't know, maybe 10 years now. Indeed, if anyone had come to my chambers in the courthouse or come to my office at DLA now, You will see my two chairs that I won at auction from the old Yankee Stadium from the 1970s renovation of the stadium, as well as various other tchotchkes and the like about the Yankees. So that's that's one. 
The other, uh, you may have noticed, I snuck in a reference to Sherlock Holmes earlier in, in our talk. I have been a member of the Baker Street Irregulars since the early 1970s. The Baker Street Irregulars being the uh, U.S.-based but international uh, Sherlock Holmes Literary Society. And one can't just join the Baker Street Irregulars. Yes, one can subscri- anyone can subscribe to their magazine, the Baker Street Journal, and go to some other functions. But to actually say one is a Baker Street Irregular, you have to be invited to join based on your service to the cause, so to speak. And I've been involved in that for a very, very long time. And much to my wife's aggravation, have 11 bookcases full of Sherlock Holmes books in our apartment. And one might ask, there are only 60 Sherlock Holmes stories. How do I fill 11 bookcases? To which I guess the answer is, you'd be surprised. But it includes first editions of the stories. Um, It includes the magazine appearances. Uh, After the first two Sherlock Holmes novellas, most of the stories appeared in the Strand magazine in England and the U.S. version of the Strand magazine uh, as short stories, monthly sort of installments. I have most but not all of those. Then there are all of the commentary volumes about Holmes, as well as parodies and pastiches, etc., etc., etc. So I am very active in Sherlockian activity. And then, of course, there is, you know, family. Um, my wife and I are extremely happy um, and pleased that this November our son is getting married. We really like Um, his fiancée. We've known her for a while now. They've been going out for way too long, perhaps, but are finally getting married. We like her parents, so it's all terrific. Well, congratulations on that, Judge. Thank you, Sean. And do you want to share, actually, where that ceremony is going to take place? Because it's not in your hometown. Well, it's in Brooklyn, and uh, I know you live in Brooklyn, Sean, Having grown up in the Bronx, you know, I am much less familiar with Brooklyn. Uh, My wife grew up in Brooklyn, and we sometimes joke about we're a mixed marriage because Bronx and Brooklyn are like two different worlds. But yes, uh, even though David, our son, lives on the Upper East Side currently, he spends a lot of time in Brooklyn. And so they've found one of these former warehouses that's now a party space in Brooklyn, and that's where the wedding will be. Oh, very good. Well, although different worlds, they all come together at some time. So, Judge, how can listeners get in touch with you? And when they do, should they still call you Judge Peck? Uh, I guess uh, once a judge, always a judge. And uh, it can never go wrong calling somebody, you know, judge or senator. We have Senator Mitchell here at the firm, and yes, he's referred to as Senator Mitchell. So Judge Peck is always fine, and you know, except for people who've known me for a million years or whatever it may be. I'll answer to almost anything, but you can't go wrong with the title. 
as to how they can get in touch with me, obviously you can go to the DLA Piper website, but uh, for those listening, my email is andrew.peck at dlapiper.com. And my office phone number is 212-335-4631. Again, 212-335-4631. And andrew.peck at dlapiper.com. And I'd love to hear from people, particularly potential clients. Well, thank you for your time, Judge Peck. It's been an interesting conversation, and I look forward to our next one. This has been another edition of Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. If you like what you heard today, please rate us at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. Join us in the next edition of Law Technology Now. I'm Sean LaRocque-Doherty, and we are signing off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.